And Noah went forth, and his sons, and his wife, and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every fowl, and whatsoever creepeth upon the earth after their kinds, went forth out of the ark. And Noah builded an altar unto the Lord, and took of every clean beast, and of every clean fowl, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a sweet savor, and the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more everything living as I have done. While the earth remaineth seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. Genesis chapter 8 verses 18 through 22. Welcome back to the Liftbridge Podcast. This is your host, John Laurie, coming to you live from the Zenith City, Duluth, Minnesota, on a particularly foggy first day of autumn. And this is our awesome autumn episode. We are going to be talking about something that, you know, maybe uh, this fog is the second best setting that really we should be sitting around a campfire talking about this. But we're going to be talking about the fiery flying serpent. In fact, I was thinking about calling this the fiery fall episode, but I liked awesome autumn better. Um, we're also going to be talking about some fun fall traditions, and uh, we're just so excited to get into God's Word today, look at some very intriguing passages, and uh, glad that you're here with us. And once again, hope that this is a reminder to you to keep looking up. Happy Saturday, everybody. It's a great day to start a new season. If you are listening for the first time, thanks so much for being here. It's so great to have you part of the show. Welcome back, new listeners, old listeners. So glad to have you with us. Our last couple episodes, uh, there's been a little uh, mini explosion of listeners, and it's just been great to see that. Thanks so much for making this show part of your, your day, your weekend. We're so glad to be here with you, and we hope you do find it encouraging. In our opening today, I read from Genesis chapter 8. One of the things that really intrigues me about that um, last verse in that chapter is how it talks about seasons. And let me just refresh your memory here. While the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. So, in other words, the Lord there is laying out kind of the groundwork for this new earth. Now, you might think of the explorers like Columbus and other, other explorers who set sail for the new world. And we usually think of uh, the old world as Europe and Asia, and we think of the Americas as the new world. But remember, Noah also set sail. And he did not come back to the same place he had left. 
he came to a new world. And uh, basically the Lord had recreated the earth in a sense in that just as the earth had been covered with water at the creation and the dry land was raised up out of it, now the same thing was rehappening after the flood uh, of which the evidence is everywhere around us. And we just see that now that the Lord was starting things over and he was going to fill the earth again, fill the earth with people, fill the earth with animals, he gave them this um, mandate to, to multiply and a blessing. And he, in fact, he goes on to say in the very next verse, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. And so this really speaks to this fact that God is continuing to do this. He's continuing to give mankind that, uh, that directive. And uh, it speaks to having children. It speaks to um, the fact that uh, raising animals um, it speaks to even uh, our efforts to conserve our natural resources like uh, the deer population and Got to make sure you have that venison on the table. Uh, so we think about God was laying out the groundwork. And here he's saying the seasons are going to continue. The seasons are going to continue to be part of your life. And this might have been different. The seasons might have been different before the flood. And of course, there's a lot of mystery about the antediluvian world. But we, we know that here at this point, the Lord is laying out that the seasons are going to be part of our lives. And so I think as we begin this new season of Awesome Autumn, we, we can just remember this is a blessing that God has given us. It's a good thing when the seasons change. I, sometimes there's a, a little feeling of, um, I don't know, wistfulness about the, uh, the changing of the seasons. If you listen to a lot of the... Um, kind of songs that were written about autumn um, that were sung in like the 1950s. You know, the music's slightly melancholy. It's kind of, you know, then that's part of the feeling, I think. Especially, uh, you know, as you look out the window and there's fog (laughs) covering everything. (laughs) But really, the season is a good thing. God meant for us to have these seasons. I think my wife would prefer that the season of heat would be longer than the season of cold, but after all, we do live in Duluth, so um, we're a little closer to the North Pole here than, say, in uh, uh, Waco, Texas. So uh, we are so thrilled to beginning to be beginning the season with you, and as we think about the fact that that God meant uh, for seasons to be part of our lives, uh, it's really neat to. Look out the window and on this kind of uh, slow Saturday and just notice some of the changes that I see out there. One of the things that's been really cool is um, the birds are uh, kind of showing this thing that they call fallout. And during migration, when there's just all of these birds moving, just like at airports uh, where all, all of these people are moving, um, If a flight gets grounded due to bad weather, all of these people are forced to be on the ground. And uh, it's the exact same thing with birds. Um, They do not want to fly right now. 
at least not the little guys. And so I have counted 10 white-throated sparrows and about 11 palm warblers, and they've been bobbing their little tails, and uh, man, they are so cute. And a northern flicker and some juncos, and they're all looking for something to eat and uh, all kind of waiting out the storm, waiting for the weather to improve so they can carry on their journey. So you can really relate to them if you've ever been stuck at an airport. I was once stuck for an entire day at the Madrid airport. So I have a ton of sympathy for these guys and uh, and uh, we just hope that they continue to uh, get safely to where they're going. Um, but we, we look out the window, we see these birds moving, the apples are red. We have a little apple tree in the backyard and it just this year got its first apples and there are three apples on there. <laughs> and uh, they're beautiful and red and um, we, we kind of see that the flowers are still going, which is something I just love. Uh, every, everything is mostly green. Most of the trees are covered in green leaves, but there are these uh, hints of red, hints of orange, hints of yellow that are just spectacular. If you look across the street, across the church parking lot, you will see these beautiful orange and red um, and yellow leaves, and it's just breathtaking, just beautiful. So we've got a lot of color in the landscape, which is something I am. I just think is... Um, can I use the word magical? Is that okay for me to use that word? I think it's just magical to see all of the color. And as we've talked on this program, there's always color in the landscape. But at this time of year, it is inescapable. It is inis- you, you, you would really have to not be not, try not to notice it to not see it. And so we just get all these rich colors and God is just uh, blessing our socks off with that. So... Hopefully, uh, one of your fall traditions includes um, something that gets you out and just appreciating this time of harvest as we, as we think about this. This is the time of harvest. Um, it's not quite the season of winter yet. It is a season of harvest. Um, maybe you're taking your family to an apple orchard or a pumpkin patch. Maybe it's time for you to go in out to the garden and dig up your potatoes. I'll be doing that in the next week or two. All of my all of my potato plants are have been withered down to little sticks, and uh, so I'm really excited to go out and dig them up and see what happened over the summer. Uh, we had a drought, um, but you know these things are pretty tough. Maybe maybe they will surprise us. So we are very excited about that, um, but. You know, in your own way, um, whatever, whether you have a garden or whether uh, you have to go to an apple orchard, I hope you get out there and, and just enjoy the fact that it took a couple of months for this food, uh, for this beautiful fruit of the earth to develop and to be there uh, for you to enjoy and uh you are, you are really getting to enjoy something special. Um, that's a, just a really special time. Um, the hunting season has started in, in the same way. That also is a harvest, isn't it? 
It's a harvest of uh, a wonderful resource of food God has given us, um, which goes back to the Noahic covenant um, before God, uh, in the beginning, only authorized men uh, to eat um, these, uh, let's just, I don't know if vegetable is the right word, but more like plant-based food. Let's just use a kind of a modern type of thing. But I don't think they were making them into hamburgers. Uh, (laughs) um, And so when things changed after the flood, uh, God told man that it was now okay to eat animals. That was a, a big change. Um, but, you know, I'm really glad he did. I love a good steak and I, I love getting to eat fish and, and venison and, and grouse and good things from the land that God has blessed. Um, so there's a lot of, a lot of neat, um, a lot of neat opportunities. I think God is constantly using food to speak to us. It's amazing how many ways that food is a uh, a real either the just food itself or as a symbol um even in communion right food is a love language god uses to speak to us we all understand it <laughs> and uh you know even the church potluck right it's a love language that god is using and harvest time is really a time in which food shines um we have all of these different sources of it coming in, and uh, it's just a really neat way for us to give thanks to God for what he has done for us. Uh, without him, we would not have this food to enjoy. So, that being said, um, hope that somewhere in your family's plans, there's, a, uh, there's going to be a day or a few hours at least where you go out and, and do some harvesting, maybe talk to your kids about it. And uh, just make, take some time, take a few um, quiet moments um, after you've had all the fun to just say, thank you, God, for this food. And uh, it'll make a big impression on those kids. All right, join us in our next segment. We're going to be talking about the fiery flying serpent. Well, welcome to the segment. And in this segment, we're going to be talking about something that would be perfect if we were all seated around a campfire. And as I'm looking out the window and I see all of this mist, uh, I'm reminded of just, you know, this is a pretty good setting for talking about this too. Um, We love to talk about strange creatures And today we're going to be talking about a cryptid, uh, a very rare cryptid. I'm not talking about a a woke KJV guy. You know, that's probably the rarest cryptid you will ever find. Um, (laughs) But um, we're going to be talking about the fiery flying serpent. Now, this, Caitlin and I have been listening to a podcast entitled Haunted Cosmos, and it's done by Brian Save and a guy at his church named Ben. And Ben's last name escapes me at the moment. But if you um, are familiar with the show Bright Hearth, which is also a podcast, same guy, um, but very different vibe, very different show. And um, 
it's actually a really neat show. Now, I, I just want to take the opportunity to say that um, if I mention something I watched or listened to, it is not a complete endorsement of everything um, that they've ever said or done. So just remember that. I'm reminded of when I was talking about a Charlie Barron's podcast and then I watched like the next one. And I was like, ah, uh, I just told people to watch this, right? So there's obviously take things uh, in the spirit in which that they are suggested in. Uh, if you find something that you don't like about something that I recommend, well, just know that I'm not endorsing everything they've ever said or done. However, that being said, I really enjoyed listening to the first episode of the Haunted Cosmos podcast, in which they talk about the sea, they talk about Leviathan, and they talk about the different experiences people have had. And one of the one of the goals of this show is just to open people's um, Overton windows um, to the fact that not everybody who has these experiences is lying. Not all of them are making it up. And when we see these strange uh, experiences, strange creatures, uh, it actually fits with the worldview that we have as Christians. It's not a challenge to it. It's not a threat to it. It actually is something that we should expect as Christians. Um, on the one hand, there are creatures that God has made that are like Leviathan that we would expect to run across very infrequently. I'm here in Duluth, Minnesota. I I uh, love going to the ocean, but when I go to the ocean, I'm you know playing in in the surf. I'm not out in the ocean plumbing the depths of the ocean. So I'm not gonna run across a leviathan in my bathtub, right? Um, so some of these creatures we are going to find, um, you know, we're going to have very few personal experiences if we're not living in the area. Um, others of these creatures, and they they do talk about. Um, the fact that some of these um, have to do with uh, experiences of hostile powers um, that are attempting to deceive um, people, especially people who uh, are not believers. And uh, and if you're interested in this sort of thing, you uh, will probably really enjoy that podcast. But uh, it got me thinking about something that somebody at church had uh, asked about. And so I thought, you know, this is kind of my homage, my hat tip to uh, Brian and Ben. I'm going to be talking about the fiery flying serpent today. Uh, a dear lady at our church named Leslie called me up one day and she said, I've read this Bible verse. I'm trying to find out what it means. Will you help me to study it and help me to figure out what it means. So I read it and this is what the verse she was reading said. Okay. Um, and so it's in the book of Isaiah. If you will turn with me and we're going to be looking at this uh, classic uh, you know, Isaiah, he's one of the four major prophets. And 
obviously has a lot of things to say about Christ. And so we're going to be looking at this verse. And it is Isaiah 14.29. Isaiah 14.29. All right. Let me read it for you. Rejoice not thou, whole Palestina, because the rod of him that smote thee is broken. For out of the serpent's root shall come forth a cockatrice, and his fruit shall be a fiery flying serpent. Wow. Okay, guys. Do uh, you see what I'm talking about? The campfire atmosphere. A fiery flying serpent. That is legit. Okay. <laughs> this is not something you want to run into. If you read the description in... Uh, and this this is not the only time that this is mentioned in the Bible, by the way. Um, if you look at the description, and we get a fuller description of this creature in the book of Numbers. And we're going to go to that, that description here. But when you read that description in the book of Numbers, this is not something that anybody would want to just run across on a picnic. This is something that is, uh, you know, let's just say, you know, it's something to be admired from a distance. But it is described as a real creature. And in Numbers 21, let me read to you what happened. Let's start in verse 5. And the people spake against God and against Moses. Wherefore have ye brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water. And our soul loatheth this light bread. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, and set it upon a pole. And it shall come to pass that every one that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass, and put it upon a pole. And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. Wow. Well, we so many directions we could take. And uh, we're going to get to something truly amazing, that there is a direct connection in this passage to Jesus and his work on the cross for us. But before we do that, I want to talk about the fiery flying serpent. What was it? Well, oftentimes people have, and this is very common, when something is outside of your frame of experience, it is very easy. Your knee-jerk reaction is to reject it. To say, oh, well, either it's mythical, it's made up, um, it's symbolic of something. But... You tell this to the people who were being bit by these fiery flying serpents and dying. It was very real. So, 
one of the things that's very interesting about this is that uh, we've already looked at two of the places in Scripture where this is talked about. The, um, the last one in the Old Testament is in Deuteronomy 8.15. And uh, you can look that one up too. And uh, it might give us a little bit more. Deuteronomy 8.15 who led thee through that great and terrible wilderness wherein were fiery serpents and scorpions and drought, where there was no water, who brought thee forth water out of the rock of flint. Okay, so it's talking about how God led them through the wilderness. Now we know the wilderness is real. We know scorpions are real. We know drought is real. So what should we conclude about these fiery flying serpents? Well, they are... Yes, real. They are real. Okay, so the Bible talks about them as being real. What, what do we have? What other clues are there about these creatures? Well, I'm going to hold off on the New Testament reference to this because I want us to just understand kind of like the creature itself before we go into um, the connection to Jesus. Some of you are, are just agonizing. Oh no, tell us, tell us. But remember that um, when Isaiah, oh, um, I spoke too soon. There is another reference uh, in Isaiah's 30th chapter. He talks about how these creatures could be found in Egypt in his day. So when we put all of this together, we see that it was a real creature. It was able to, it lived in the wilderness um, during the time of the, uh, the uh, generation that came out of Egypt. Um, it could also be found in Egypt in Isaiah's day. So it was living in the same basic vicinity. And the, the words themselves... Um, give us some clues about what this creature would have looked like. Um, so, the Hebrew word seraph means burning. And this is one of the words used to describe this creature. Um, it, the addition of another Hebrew word indicates a flying action. And so it was not merely like a snake that is found on the ground and ugh, you don't like it, you don't want to have anything to do with it. I mean, think about how, how this is a, a serpent that could fly and that had the resemblance uh, to a live coal. Now, the Bible is not the only ancient document that talks about it. I, I read a long article written by a creation scientist named David Wetzel. And he sifted through many Bible commentaries, historical authors, and he even personally did some exploration for this creature in a remote corner of Papua New Guinea. Now, just take David Wetzel's name out of this. I want to give him credit because I, I did not come up with all this information. And in fact, you can find 
the same article that I'm looking at. If you look up um, something called genesispark.com, where he talks about different creatures that that uh, the Bible talks about, and it's very very neat. David is a really cool guy, um, from what I've read of him. And if you also look him up, you're going to find a typical hit piece uh, because what David is doing threatens the narrative. And so all of these hit pieces about him are going to say, oh, there's no proof, he's crazy, he's a liar, um, he's, he's one of these crazy young earth creationists, uh, stop, don't doubt the narrative this is what the narrative is that you have to believe it if you're with it and cool and want anybody to respect you this is the way it is don't question the narrative Uh, you will find those articles written about him but if you look at the quality of his work before he ever went into the field looking he did his homework and his homework speaks for itself he he first looked up um author after he finished studying the bible and came to the conclusion that well this is a real creature i mean it was biting people they were dying from it Um, it was something that not only existed in moses day but in isaiah's day Um, he he went looking in other ancient books and he talks about how he discovered that it was mentioned by herodotus and josephus now, these are two of the ancient authorities that everybody knows about. Um, Herodotus is spoken of as the founder of um, historical study. Uh, you know, we, uh, he is an extra-biblical writer, but obviously uh, he is a great guy to go. And Herodotus talks about how, yes, this was... Uh, something that existed. Um, Josephus also mentions this. And one of the things that's really interesting about um, the fact that that this is mentioned by these two guys um, is that they, they talk about how the natural enemy of this um, of this creature was a bird, uh, the ibis bird, and he uh, mentions how these uh, how the ibis would basically go and and eat these birds, and there's even a mention of how people would stash these birds in baskets and if they ran into these these creatures they'd release the ibis and the ibis would go and eat them and um and then presumably would be too full to go anywhere they'd catch the bird again and put it back in the basket um but what's really interesting is again this uh let me just uh, share a little bit about what Herodotus wrote. He said, um, There is a place in Arabia situated very near the city of Buto, to which I went, on hearing of some winged serpents. And when I arrived there, I saw bones and spines of serpents in such quantities as it would be impossible to describe. 
It is reported that at the beginning of spring, winged serpents fly from Arabia towards Egypt, but that Ibises, a sort of bird, meet them at the pass and do not allow the serpents to go by, but kill them. The form of the serpent is like that of the water snake, but he has wings without feathers and as like as possible to the wings of a bat. And then later on in his third volume, I'm reading from the article here, Herodotus goes on to tell how these animals could sometimes be found in the Arabian spice groves. He describes their size, color, and reproduction. And it seems flying serpents were infamous for hanging in frankincense trees. When workers wanted to gather the tree's incense, they would employ putrid smoke to drive the flying reptiles away. Now, Josephus is the guy who talks in his, um, in his book about how Moses put these ibis birds in these baskets. And this is what Josephus wrote. Moses invented a wonderful stratagem to preserve the army safe and without hurt. For he made baskets like unto arks of sedge and filled them with ibis and carried them along with them which animal is the greatest enemy to serpents imaginable. For they fly from them when they come near them, and as they fly they are caught and devoured by them, as if it were done by the hearts. So, he is talking about the same thing Herodotus is talking about, and again he is talking about the same thing, it would seem, that the Bible is talking about. Um, Pliny talked about this as well. And he, uh, we see that, again, so far, so good. Well, of course, here's what you're wondering. Um, is this creature alive today? Well, one of the things that's really interesting is that the more that David Wetzel started looking for this, the more he found it. He, he was digging he found um, pictures of these on um, in pictures of artifacts. Um, they were depicted by different people on artifacts that were found. Um, so we get a picture of literally what they looked like. Um, we understand that um, they were talked about throughout the ancient world. But also, they were talked about in the Middle Ages. Here's a really interesting account that David Wetzel um, shared. And this was something he found um, written by a woman named, uh, written about a woman named Marie Trevelyan in Wales in 1909. Um, The woods around Paneline Castle, Glamorgan, had the reputation of being frequented by winged serpents, and these were the terror of old and young alike. An aged inhabitant of Paneline, who died a few years ago, said that in his boyhood the winged serpents were described as very beautiful. They were coiled when in repose and looked as though they were covered with jewels of all sorts. Some of them had crests sparkling with all the colors of the rainbow. When disturbed, they glided swiftly, sparkling all over to their hiding places. When angry, they flew over people's heads with outspread wings, bright and sometimes 
with eyes too, like the feathers in a peacock's tail. He said it was no old story invented to frighten children, but a real fact. His father and uncles had killed some of them, for they were as bad as foxes for poultry. The old man attributed the extinction of winged serpents to the fact that they were terrors in the farmyards and coverts. An old woman whose parents in her early childhood took her to visit Penmark Place, Glamorgan, said she often heard the people talking about the ravages of the winged serpents in that neighborhood. Um, so it's not clear to me from the article whether that was supposed to have taken place in the Middle Ages or closer to 1909, but suffice it to say that there were people in Europe who also saw these creatures. And um, we, we hear about flying serpents um, living in Egypt. Um, we hear about them um, living in Europe. Here's a, here's a really interesting one. This was a, a guy written by Athanasius Kircher. And he told how the nobleman Christopher Shorerum wrote a true history summarizing their all. For by that way he was able to confirm the truth of the things experienced and indeed the things truly seen by the eye. On a warm night in 1619, while contemplating the serenity of the heavens, I saw a shining dragon of great size in front of Mount Pilatus coming from the opposite side of the lake. A cave that is named Flu. Moving rapidly in an agitated way, seen flying across, it was of a large size with a long tail, a long neck, a reptile's head, and a ferocious gaping jaws. As it flew, it was like iron struck in a forge when pressed together that scatters sparks. At first, I thought it was a meteor from what I saw, but after I diligently observed it alone, I understood it was indeed a dragon from the motion of the limbs of the entire body. From the writings of a respected clergyman, in fact, a dragon truly exists in nature. It is amply established. Well, I'm not going to uh, attempt to read all of the things that that David Wetzel cites. Uh, I mean, that would be pretty boring radio here. But um, the fact is, you can look these things up for yourself. Now, David Wetzel was doing all of this um, from in the same way that you could do this uh, by using the internet, using books, using a library to study these things. And so far, what he saw got him very interested to research more. And um, as he continued to rack, to rack up these observations, he discovered that these things, these similar things, were not confined to the ancient period or the medieval period, but we're actually in the modern period. And he talks about the um, uh, a dragon that was seen at Rome in 1691. And he talks about the Thunderbird of the American West, which an American Indian reported seeing in 1870. He talks about how in 1944, an American GI reported seeing something similar in Papua New Guinea. And so as he, as he uh, found more and more evidence for this, he decided that he wanted to go and look for this creature himself. And so he decided he would go to Papua New Guinea. I'll let you read about that for yourself and what he discovered 
there. But let's just say that the part of what is so interesting about David Wetzel's research is that these accounts are, are written down. Maybe uh, some people on the internet are attacking David Wetzel. You didn't see what you saw, but again, we get back to this kind of principle. All of these accounts that we find in history, um, certainly not the ones in Holy Scripture, um, <laughs> these accounts, they're not all making it up. They're not all lying. There is this creature that was able to fly. It had the appearance of a coal. It was fiery. This could refer to the color of its skin, or it might have referred to um, the way that the sun made it appear. Uh, it might have had something even to do with uh, bioluminescence. That's really, really cool. But suffice it to say, this was a real creature that really existed, and it came in different sizes. Um, there were some that were large, some that were small. Um, it moved in and out of territories as it was hunted. But basically, if you think about it, it's been seen around the world. And uh, there are wild places on the earth where um, this creature would still uh, be looked for. Um, so it's very, very interesting. Now, let me take, take this back to an experience I had this summer. No, I did not see it myself. But I was at Grand Portage, and over the, uh, there's an awning over the elementary school building at Grand Portage. And there was a depiction of a Thunderbird on this awning. So as kids walked into school, they would walk under this depiction of this Thunderbird. And this was very intriguing to me because it was one of those opportunities that we see so often in Scripture to engage uh, a culture, to engage a group of people with a connection to Scripture. And because this Thunderbird is probably the same creature that the uh, Israelites experience in the wilderness. It is probably um, at least a variation on it. And these stories of uh, encountering the Thunderbird, these were not eagles. These were not um, large birds of prey. This was something much bigger and um, let's just say much more intense. And these were experiences of real creatures that they had. They were not uh, merely mythological. So, um, and, and people continued to see them. Uh, Native Americans continued to see them uh, in this one report up to 1870s. I mean, that's not that long ago. So I, I thought this is such a cool opportunity to use this part of their culture, to use this, this memory of this animal in their culture to talk about Jesus. And that's where I want to take this now, is that that is what Isaiah is talking about 
in Isaiah 14, 29. Um, when he is talking about um, the serpent's root, this serpent, this word here is the same as in uh, Genesis where it's talking about the serpent. And so this is a, a bad word, right? Uh, nahash. And the Hebrew word uh, has something to do with the sound of hissing. It's one of those onomatopoeic words. Easy for me to say, I know. And so in this verse, Isaiah 14, 29, there, there's this prophecy given to the Philistines. Now there had been this king named Ahaz and he had uh, attempted to defeat the Philistines, but the Philistines defeated him and they took some of the land of Judah. And you know, it turns out that this Ahaz guy was not a real prize. Um, and so if you, it makes sense of the first part of this prophecy um, because we're told in this chapter that Ahaz, um, we're told in this chapter or near this chapter that Ahaz had died. And that becomes the clue to understanding this text. Um, Ahaz had died and so the Philistines were rejoicing. And he's saying, oh, not so fast, Philistines. Now, he doesn't attempt to argue that Ahaz wasn't a serpent. In fact, he uses the word serpent to describe Ahaz. But this is what he says, for out of the serpent's root, right? Uh, out of the serpent's root, this is a reference to the promise of the Messiah to David. Even though, this is how awesome God is. Even though Ahaz was not a great guy, God was using Ahaz and his line to bring the Messiah into the world. For out of the serpent's root shall come forth a cockatrice. Now, we're not going to spend too much time on that word, but um, let's just say that this was, uh, the King James translators used this word to talk about a more fearsome snake. Um, and this was a Saxon word that they had available to them to talk about kind of a more intense type of snake. So not just a garden variety snake, um, but a more fearsome type of snake. And that's talking about Ahaz's son. And um, what was going to happen was that uh, Ahaz's son was going to be, um, the reason they shouldn't, be so quick to rejoice is that Ahaz's son was going to actually uh, come and deal with the Philistines and he was going to finish this work that his father had started in dealing with them or at least continue it. But then uh, um, Isaiah is looking beyond this immediate prophecy about what Ahaz's son Hezekiah is going to do and with the Philistines. And he's looking to what Christ is going to do. And it says, For out of the serpent's root shall come forth a cockatrice, and his fruit shall be a fiery flying serpent. Now, what is so neat about that is that Ahaz, not a great guy, he did not do right in the eyes of the Lord, but he is in the line of the Messiah. Out of his root is going to come not just a cockatrice, a more fearsome snake, but a fiery flying serpent. Now, yes, we see a progression from 
less intense to more intense, but that's not the only thing that's going on here because this is actually a reference to Jesus. And what we see here is that Christ spoke of this event that happened in the wilderness in John chapter 3, verse 14. Now, does that sound significant? Have you ever heard of a verse called John 3, 16? This is just two verses before this. And in John chapter 3, verse 14, Jesus is talking right before he shares this very, very famous verse about the gospel. This is what Jesus says. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Wow. So what was Jesus going to be lifted up as? He was going to be in the place of that fiery flying serpent that Moses made and put up on that pole. And when people looked at him who had been bitten by this judgment from God, they would live. I get goosebumps thinking about this stuff, folks. Um, what I want us to just kind of, as we, as we kind of close thinking about this, um, what's so significant is that the Bible tells us that Jesus was made sin for us. And just as these fiery flying serpents were there to punish the people for their sin of blaspheming God, uh, they received the wages of their sin in the form of these fiery flying serpents. They earned it. Uh, God had to pay them for this. And of course, they didn't want that. God didn't want them to perish, but he had to pay them for their the wages of their sin. And so... This fiery flying serpent becomes this picture of what Jesus would do on the cross. Uh, Moses was supposed to take something that would be like the punishment of their sin and put it on this pole. Now remember, this is not just a serpent. We see this picture of the serpent around the pole. Um, It's a symbol of the medical industry. Um, You might see it on an ambulance. You might see it even on a a veterinarian's um, uh, veterinary logo. I've seen it there. Um, But they don't depict it like it would have actually been seen. Remember that these were winged creatures. Their wings would have stuck out. And so what it actually looked like is it looked like a cross because their wings were sticking out. Uh, when Moses put this uh, thing that was supposed to look like it on the pole, it looked like a cross. And Jesus said that just like that serpent was raised in the wilderness, he would be lifted up. And the clear teaching here is that if we look at him, we will live. And that, that idea of looking at him and living is this understanding that when Christ is set before us as salvation and we and we lift our eyes to him in faith we look on him to live we will live this is what he was telling Nicodemus and of course Nicodemus was uh, would have known this he would have been a, st- a student of um, the books of Moses look at the next verse that Jesus says 
John 3.15, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. If you were one of those Israelites who was bitten by that fiery flying serpent and you didn't look at the pole, you'd die. But if you looked at the pole, if you looked at this thing that had been made a punishment, taking the form of the punishment for you, you would live. And it's the same thing, folks, with our sin and with Jesus. God put him on the pole so that we would not die of our sins, but we would live. We would not suffer the wrath of God, but we would instead have his favor. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Thanks so much for listening to this. I just want us to understand that if we understand that God has put these creatures in the world, because he he delights to have these things in existence. He's a creative God. He loves to make different things. What's so cool is that this creature is in the culture of these people that we want to know the Lord. And here is a symbol of Jesus Christ, and it's in their culture, and it's just waiting for somebody to explain And so if you are um, in a position to do that, to talk to people about the the Thunderbird, um, strike up a conversation about it. Make note of some of these verses. Challenge them to look at these things. I, I think God wants us to make these connections so that people can look at Jesus and live. Well, see you in the next one. the old clock on the wall is telling me it's time to go and hope that you've enjoyed this edition it's so amazing how god uses seasons he uses nature he uses food to teach us lessons about things that really matter so uh, what an awesome opportunity for you to use these things teach your kids teach other people around you strike up a conversation and um it's just amazing how, how God uses these things uh, to speak to us. And uh, it's exciting. So hope that this has encouraged you. Hope that you are ready to enjoy a wonderful fall. Hope you had a great uh, summer. And we look forward to uh, joining you again. And remember, keep looking up.